1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3.
0: And the pivotal event of the book of Acts, Acts 15 is the Council of Jerusalem where James himself quotes Amos 9 from the Old Testament, all these things. So, now Peter is going to cite the Old Testament with examples to prove that God does intervene in history. And that's the, the, he's going to cite rebuttals to that very premise. The first of that, first of the ones he alludes to is a flood. Now the question that lurks here, by the way, I don't want to make a big thing of it, but I want you to be aware of the fact, there's some difference of opinion as to which flood we're talking about. Uh, We obviously can take the safe ground by assuming he's talking about the flood of Noah, because I think he is but not necessarily. I was quite surprised to discover some very prominent Bible teachers suggest the possibility it's not the flood of Noah. It could be the original judgment in the so-called gap between Genesis, the first two verses of the book of Genesis. And I was quite surprised to find that J. Vernon McGee privately holds that view, that it probably is an allusion to the gap theory. I didn't even know he was a gap theorist because uh, uh, there are a lot of very good scholars that uh, you know, are a little uncomfortable with the gap theory. So the safe ground is to assume he's talking about the flood of Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. But let's go see what he says here. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. What's that referring to? Could be either one, by the way. Because we encounter the, the earth in the second verse of Genesis but the earth had become. We'll get into that here in a minute. The willingly. Ignorance here, though, is a response to the will. And that's what Romans 1 teaches us. That, you're, that uh, ignorance is willful. It's willful. And it's a decision. It's not a lack of information. And uh, it's important for us to understand that. If you have any doubts about that, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 1 very carefully. And, if you, and the antediluvians, the people that were with Noah before the flood... They wanted God to depart. We get that insight from Job and elsewhere. And that's the way it is today. They really don't want God around, okay? The pagan world would like to get the Christians out of their hair, and God is going to give them exactly what they want when the time comes, interestingly enough. But, uh, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. You know, Psalm 136.6 says, Um, The sixth verse of that says, He stretched out the earth above the waters. That's interesting. Interesting phrase in the Psalms. Psalm 24, verse 2, He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. We have a very very different, uh, you know, uh, uh, cosmology here implied in the Scripture. But Peter goes on, verse 6 and 7, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Okay, the the world that then was, he's dealing with here. And um, so this certainly could refer to the flood of Noah. It might refer to some other things. There was a universal flood in the time of Noah. Now, by the way, let me underscore that. The Bible clearly indicates that flood was worldwide. There are people who say, well, it was just a local flood. If that's true, God didn't keep His promise. If the flood of Noah was just a small region, God promised He would never do that again. Well, there's been lots of local floods, regional floods. So if the flood of Noah was local, God didn't keep His promise. No, no, no. The flood of Noah was universal, and that's what God promised He would never do again. There are many scholars, and I tend to lean this way myself, that believe the flood oh, no, it was the second flood. <clears throat> there was a flood that we, are, we pick up the story on in the second verse of Genesis. The gap theory. This will be old news for most of you, but just to put this in perspective, <clears throat> there are some basic issues that hide behind this. When were the angels created? Long before the earth. We learned that from Job. When did Satan fall? He's an angel that fell. Very powerful. He's in charge of everyone. He fell. When? He was already fallen by Genesis 3. And so, is there a gap between the first two verses of Genesis? It seems to be suggested several places throughout the Bible, and it's our conjecture that that was a judgment that was associated with Satan's fall earlier than the second verse of Genesis. Let's take a look at what it says in the first few verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. No no contest. If you understand that verse, every other verse in the Bible will yield to you. And then your King James says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved or brooded among the face of the wa- upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let light be. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. The evening and the morning were day one. Strange order. The evening, Erev and Boker. The evening and the morning were day one. But it's the second verse that causes some attention because it reads in your King James in the English, and the earth was without form and void. Well, when you get to Isaiah, God has a passage there, chapters 44 and 45 that are incredible. But in verse 18 of chapter 45, God says something very strange. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. Same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. He created it not in vain. The tohu, same word, without form, confused. You see, the way we have it in our Genesis thing, in the earth was without form and void and darkness is upon the face of the deep. The word was there turns out to be a transitive verb, a verb requiring action. And it, so, haya, it, it had be. It, it's in the past perfect form here, had become, and the earth had become. It was not that way originally, it had become without form and void. And it's the same verb that's used in Genesis 19 when Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. Same word. In other words, it's a, it's a verb of action, okay? It became without form, and that's of course, tohu, vabohu, tohu, the same word that's used in Isaiah and void, boho. Now the word and there is a vav, which is a conjunction. But it's interesting that that conjunction is adversative, and is so rendered in both the Septuagint and also in the Latin Vulgate. It's adversative. In other words, it should be translated, not and, but the earth. There's an adversative aspect to it. And it's so used in a number of passages. That term also, by the way, often is used in the Hebrew to represent a significant time delay. An eight-year period in Exodus, a 38-year period in Deuteronomy, a seven-year period in First Chronicles, 58 years. The term, and it's, but, it implies a delay. But in any case, so this could be translated more properly, but the earth had become without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And if that's the case, then that sort of gives us a hint that something transpired between the first two verses. And uh, as we look through all of this, uh, we find those, those terms, tohu uh, Vabohu, in several passages in Isaiah and also Jeremiah. We'll look at one in a little bit later. And darkness is upon the face of the deep, and that's toshik an It's a word for an unnatural darkness. And the deep, of course, is to whom it is, the, in the Greek, it's the abuso, or the abyss. Apparently the home of demons and evil spirits and what have you. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. So here we have this idea that there was an interval, a substantial interval, between the first two verses. is originally apparently suggested by Thomas Chalmers in 1814. And you can compare a number of scholars that have really gotten into this. Uh, George H. Pember, Earth's Earliest Ages, is a classic back in 1907. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a highly venerated conservative scholar, and he did a whole book called The Invisible War that I commend to you, Arthur Custance, Without Form and Void, he gets into this. These are the classic references uh, in the so-called gap theory. But if you look at Jeremiah, let's get back to the Word of God, in Jeremiah chapter 4, there's a little passage there that describes the earth in a way that's hard to fit into our knowledge of history. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Oh, really? And the heavens, and they had no light. That sounds like what we're talking about, doesn't it? I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And I beheld, and lo, there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens were fled. It was without form and void. And uh, again, that same term that we find in uh, 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 Genesis verse 2. But it continues, I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, And all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. And thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. I wonder why. Because there's more to come. And God was going to recreate it and give Adam uh, a role in his redemption. I do understand they've made some, there's some evidence of a preexistent civilization even way earlier than Sodom and Gomorrah, as they do, do now, but I haven't had all that confirmed, so I'll let it go. We'll go on here. Let's get back to Peter. Now, he could be referring to that as the first flood. It's possible. Uh, J. Vernon McGee leans that way, but he really presents it more, in a safer way, so to speak whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished and the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. You and I experience a creation that has had some adjustments to it. And setting aside the gap theory, let me get into that. The, the, The heavens and earth which are now, let's talk about this. We're in a second world that we're living in. Subject to a form of global warming that's going to come up here in a minute. But as we study Genesis, you may recall that we made a map of entropy uh, throughout the be- from the beginning on. Entropy is randomness, and randomness is maximum at the bottom and minimum at the top. If you look at the bottom as chaos and the top as order or design, this is upside down from the way you might expect to see it. And we have Erev and Boker. The word Erev really meaning chaos, disorder. It later comes to mean evening, because that's when things are hard to perceive, in the evening. Boker is just the opposite. That's orderly discernible. If it's not discernible, that's the evening. If it is discernible, that's morning. Those terms later come to mean evening and morning. But the original meaning may have been more generic. So we have Erev and Boker we have an, an, a decrease in entropy as God starts to create. And the first thing, he, of course, He does is He creates light with its mysterious behavior. Then the second day, He, he, he goes on and He creates, the, you know, the space itself is stretched out. And so we get to the, the, uh, to the third day, and that's when the, the uh, sea and the dry land appear. Notice, by the way, the earth is present here all along. It isn't until the fourth day that we have the planets and the sun make their appearance. That, that shatters most people's perceptions here. And so we have the fourth day where we have the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then, of course, we get to the fifth day where we have the sea animals and the birds. And then we have the finally the sixth day where we have the mammals and man created. And, uh, and then we get to this very strange day, the seventh day chapter 2 of Genesis, Then, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. On the seventh day God ended His work which He had made. He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. And so we have the seventh day, which is characterized by no error of Boker. There's no error in Boker on the seventh day. So I suggest that the Erev and Boker here had a meaning quite different than we think of it as marking a 24-hour day. Not that these weren't 24-hour days necessarily, but the point of Erev and Boker are dealing with incremental steps in the reduction of entropy. And the seventh day, there's no changes. There's nothing created. It's a day of rest. So it's, there is no Erev and Boker. And he ended. He ceased from the work. Well, we know there's some interval of time, we don't know how long it was, when we have a huge going the other way situation, the fall of man, in Genesis 3. And we have the entropy moving towards chaos, and we have no idea, we really have no grasp of what the creation was like prior to the third chapter of Genesis. We do know that we now see a cursed creation, a creation under the curse. There is, so that, that's a major change in the world. There's another major change in the world that is probably every bit as catastrophic, and that's the flood of Noah. That was more than just a lot of water. It changed the whole ecology. The whole planet Earth changed dramatically. And so it's from that point that we have this, what we might call, second world. Maybe it's the third or fourth, depending on how you're going to count things. But clearly, the world that we're in is very, very different than the world that Adam and Eve lived in and that the people before Noah's flood lived in. Huge changes. But the point is, those were changes. And they're changes that Peter's readers would understand. And his point is, if God changed it at the fall, if he changed it at the flood of Noah, he can certainly change it But the next time will not be by water. It'll be by fire. So he's going to get in. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. That's his point. You want to talk about global warming? Peter's going to talk about global warming here. Okay. Next time by fire. You'll find that in Isaiah 66. Daniel talks about it in Daniel 7. Malachi talks about it in, in, in uh, chapter 4, and 2 Thessalonians, of course, hammers that. In fact, Colossians 1 verse 17 makes the remark that all things were made by him, without him was not anything made that was made, and by him all things are, your, King James says, consist. The Greek term implies held together. Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, is holding all things together. But there is a time when he's going to let go. Okay. God's sovereignty over time. Job talks about that. See, God has a perspective and intensity and a priority that we lack. His, his concept of time is very different than ours. In fact, that's, he quotes here from Psalm 90 to make that point. Second Peter 3 says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years... And a thousand years as one day, actually as yesterday. And uh, I think we should resist the temptation to equate a day in the Scripture with specifically a thousand years. A lot of people make their little assumptions from that. That, that, I think, is pressing this verse too far. It's not a calculation. It's a metaphor. It means that time is relative. One day with the Lord, uh, a day with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years like yesterday. That's really the flavor of it. And uh, we assume that time is linear and absolute. We all think that, uh, you know, uh, an hour for us is the same as it was an hour for our pioneers in 1600 or something. We think, we think that time is time. It's, it's, it's physical and it's absolute. But we need to realize that, one, again, one of the discoveries of 20th century science is that time is a physical property, and it changes. It varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity, among other things. So time is variable. It's a relative measure. And uh, so, there are examples in the laboratory of time going backwards. A positron is regarded by some as an ele- a electron in a time reversal. And a uh, big thing for us to be concerned about, just realize though, that some of the presumptions we have are just that, they're presumptions. The nature of time. Can can time go backward? If time suddenly was going backward, how would you tell? Because everything, all all clocks would be going backwards. Everything that you can think about that you'd measure would make it impossible for you to tell whether time's going forward or backward, it turns out. Except there's one thing, if you were suddenly worried about that, there's a very simple way you could tell whether time's going forward or backward. You go get a deck of cards and shuffle them. And as you shuffle them, they become more ordered. You know you're going backwards in time, because there is an arrow of time. It's called entropy. Things go towards randomness, and uh, so a Rubik's cube, you, if you start, you know, it, it's going to get more and more confused unless you're adding some insights. So the entropy laws is a, is a way of measuring that. So eternity itself is not having lots of time, but it's being outside <coughs> of our particular time to meet all together, and. Uh, this whole idea of a 7,000-year week of, of history, ancient notion. It first appears in the Epistle of Barnabas. It's exploited by Augustine. Uh, Setterfield, Barry Sutterfield, has brought upon his head all kinds of criticism from physicists because he's been arguing for over 20 years, the speed of light is not a constant. It's been slowing down. And uh, we embraced some of his writings many years ago and took a lot of abuse from our friends like Hugh Ross and others. Only now in recent years, it's, a, it's now recognized that he's right. The speed of light has been slowing down. And it's, it's our conjecture with Barry and others that the, the uh, entropy laws were initiated in Genesis 3. They're part of the curse. But that's, we draw that, conf, that inference from Romans 8, but that's another story. Let's go on here. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And by the way, this is kind of an interesting sentence because it refutes Calvinism. Okay? Not willing that any should perish. That refutes Calvinism. It says that Christ died just for those that were saved. No, God is not willing that any should perish. The great tragedy is that after the entire panorama of, of redemption that we study, God doesn't get what he wants. After all the pain and suffering, the, the whole program, when the smoke clears, God doesn't get what he wants. He didn't get what he wants out of this deal. Why? Because not all will repent. He would prefer all to repent, but he won't violate their sovereignty. And so some will not, some will perish. God's not willing that any should perish. He would prefer all to all repent, but not all will, we know. By the way, time itself is our most inelastic resource. On Wall Street, they used to say, if money is your biggest problem, you're in great shape. Because you can always get more money. There's always another deal. New day, new deal. So that's not, that's not the critical resource. Critical resource is your health and or your time. That's limited. You can't add to that. That's what, what an economist would call an inelastic resource. An elastic resource is one that will respond to price. Oil is elastic. You know, if the price goes up, there's more of it because it makes it more feasible to get it, and so forth. So, butter. If butter's cheap, butter's, it, it, the amount of butter will function with the price of it is, so forth. That's what they mean by the the uh, supply being elastic. Time is inelastic. You cannot add new time. There's, it is perishable. Nothing's more gone than last. The hour lasted. You know or the, yesterday, last week. That's gone. And uh, so it's, it, that's what they mean by time is inelastic. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days. or I put it more precisely, number our nanoseconds, right? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now this is a phrase we want to talk about a little bit. The day of the Lord will come as a thief of night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Thief in the night. Let's talk about that a minute. That's a term from Paul's epistle. And he says a lot about that. It's amazing to me how many don't understand what he means by that. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul writing, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. There is an ellipsis here. To whom is the thief in the night? He'll explain that. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Who will not escape? Those to whom he comes as a thief in the night. He goes on here. But ye, brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. What's his point? He implies, as you understand what he's saying up here, let's go read it again. For for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. To them who are in darkness is his point. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travel upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you. See the contrast he's implying here. It's very clear if you just take the whole passage that they should overtake you. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. Ye are not of the light, night or of darkness. He continues here. So you see the difference. The thief of the night up here is in contrast to those that uh, ye are not of the night or der- uh, of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet and uh, the hope of salvation. Now, when you digest 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll discover something very bizarre. That the believer will not be caught by surprise. Doesn't know the time and the hour, don't misunderstand me. But the believer will, be in a, will not be surprised. He'll be in an expectation. that it, it, It's not caught like a thief in the night, is the point. That's to the unbeliever. That's, the, that's to the unbeliever. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall met with a fervent heat. Earth also, the works that are therein, shall be burned up. The day of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that's all through the Scripture. What is the day of the Lord? In the first chapter of the book of Revelation, there's a verse often misunderstood. Paul says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Does he mean Sunday? No, he doesn't mean Sunday. That's a a Western concept. He was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. Paul, uh, excuse me, John was transported through time and granted this view of the day of the Lord.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device.